Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, August 26, 2020. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me. Before we get into it, did you see the tweet the other day from the guy? Oh, I saw the tweet from the guy, and when I got the tweet from the guy, and our listeners don't know what the hell we're talking about, but you'll be clued in in just a second here, I had never thought or heard it that way and then i went back and i brought back the podcast i brought it up so for everyone listening i want you to stop listening right now go back to the very start of this 45 seconds ago listen to Parrish's intro and if you want to come back to this point in the podcast you'll understand what we're saying clue them in gp so I got a tweet from a guy named Nick, and he said that he's sort of new to college basketball, but he's listening to the podcast. And up until a few days ago, he didn't realize that Leaky Black is a real person. <laughs> so he thought that as I was introducing the podcast, I would say, uh, welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting. And then like, period. And then, and then I would say, and Leaky Black Matt Norlander is here with me. He thought your name was Leaky Black Matt Norlander. <laughs> this is this is which, this which is, I wish it was. Yeah, this is now this is now your new pet name for me, Leaky Black Matt Norlander. Okay, um, <laughs> no, yeah, but so yeah, because obviously every podcast starts uh, the same way with GP with those lines, and it's just your cadence. I wonder if this gentleman's the only person. He might be. Obviously, podcast vets know the uh, the Leaky Black story, but. <laughs> Where we sometimes discuss camel fighting, and Leaky Black Matt Norlander is here with me. Mm. Yes. So from now on, far as Nick and I are concerned, you're you you are a, you're Leaky Black Matt Norlander. It does speak to the lack of an impact Leaky Black has made on the sport. We needed him to be I somebody. I know. I know. Listen, he's actually. I think he's got a decent chance of being a relatively good player next season, and whatever we can have a season in any kind of capacity. But uh, I love I love those random occasional tweets, reviews in the iPod section. Just with uh, <laughs> that, you guys will sometimes catch on to something or notice something that GP and I will totally miss. So that was that was a funny thing that I did come across. Yes, I was going to bring it up if you didn't. I didn't respond on Twitter, but it did it did strike me. And then I went back and listened to the most recent podcast intro, and I was like, "Yep, sure enough, it does sound like he's calling me Leaky Black Matt Norlander." <laughs> <laughs> so shouts to Leaky Black and shouts to Nick. Let's start with something I wrote about earlier this week. The Philadelphia 76ers have fired Brett Brown. You probably heard. And now Villanova coach Jay Wright is reportedly uh, among the candidates to replace him. Understandably, Villanova fans are now somewhat nervous because nobody likes to lose a surefire future Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame coach. So Norlander, let me ask you this. Should Villanova fans be nervous that they're about to lose their future Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame coach is the coaching carousel about to get a late August, early September spin. It's not. 
Um, at least I don't think so with Jay Wright. Now, everyone go read Parrish's column where he basically lays out why Jay Wright would be... Uh, it wouldn't be a surprise if Jay Wright were to legitimately consider taking the Philadelphia 76ers job. And it doesn't really have so much to do with the 76ers roster or their current situation. And it's more about what it means in, on your, in your day-to-day life to be an NBA coach versus being a college coach. The one thing that you did not have in the column... Uh, which would make sense because I don't think it would serve the purpose of writing the column the way that you did, is the big benefit, one of the major benefits that college basketball has over the NBA is, yes, guys get fired, of course, but once you're a made guy in college, which Jay Wright obviously so clearly is, uh, it is and you kind of made quick allusion to it, but I think there's a big difference between, uh, like, for, let's just use Brad Stevens as an example. Brad Stevens is obviously securing his job, but if Brad Stevens had two non-playoff seasons with the Celtics, that third season he'd be staring at getting fired. You can get fired in the NBA. Coach of the year, it's almost become this uh, this weird taboo with the amount of times that guys will win coach of the year and get fired the next season. Uh, Jay Wright would never have that problem in college, and I think that is a major benefit to his current situation. I don't think Villanova fans should be nervous. I don't think Jay Wright is leaving Villanova for the 76ers. Uh, it's weird that this is uh, all coming down now. I'm actually in the midst of reading Dana O'Neill's book that she wrote after Villanova won its first national championship called Long Shots, and I'm about halfway through it. But um, earlier in the book, she makes reference here and there to Wright's past opportunities uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers and reasons why he obviously did not take the job then. I think most of that stuff still applies now. We can get into details about the team he has for next season and what he's built there, but I don't find this to be a high probability situation. It would bring a hell of a lot of intrigue to college basketball if we got to that point, but I don't see Jay Wright leaving to take the 76ers job because I think how he has Villanova running right now, the point on the calendar, uh, the conversations I've been told Jay Wright's been having with power brokers about what they're trying to do to salvage the season, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense for him to pull the ripcord and leave for the NBA now when he's had the chance before and he hasn't taken it. To your point about NBA coaches getting fired even when they are coach of the year, I believe it's happened twice in like recent years. George Carl in 2013 with the Denver Nuggets, NBA coach of the year, got fired. And then more recently, Dwayne Casey, Casey in Toronto after they got swept by LeBron, NBA coach of the year, and then fired. Now, obviously in Toronto, it worked out well. They hired Nick Nurse. Mm-hmm. He's now NBA coach of the year and in, in, in the Eastern Conference semifinals. But like your point is, is well taken. Um, Jay Wright could have two bad years at Villanova and nobody would blink. You have two bad years that are supposed to be good years um, in the NBA, and it's time for you to go almost regardless of who, who you are. Um, there may be some exceptions to that, Doc Rivers, Greg Popovich, but the list is pretty small. Um, I, I wrote about this, as you mentioned, Dana O'Neill also wrote about this. Dana is a real authority on Villanova basketball. She lives there. She's a former beat writer. Um, she's written a book about uh, the program. Uh, she, she, she's, it, I would consider her the authority on Villanova basketball. And in her column, one thing she did point out is that Earlier in the week, Juwan Howard was reportedly a candidate for NBA jobs, at least on the list of people being considered according to Adrian Wojnarowski. And within a few hours of that report, Juwan Howard came out and said, listen, you know, I, I, I'm, this is, I'm, I am going to be coaching college basketball. Um, he, he didn't say it definitively, but like he wanted to address it very quickly. 
as Dana points out, Jay has not said anything about this. He hasn't released a statement. He hasn't tweeted, I love Villanova or anything like that. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it's something she noticed, yeah. and she knows Jay very well. So if it's something she noticed and it stood out to her, then I, I think it's worth noticing. I, like you, also do not actually believe Jay Wright is going to leave today or next week to be the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. Like, that's not what I would bet on. But uh, as I point out in the column, I could understand why he might, and I could understand why he would listen. And it really doesn't come down to, from my perspective, the Villanova job and the Sixers job. Like, I've seen that out there a little bit. Like, you know, why would you go coach um, a mess of a franchise, although I'm not sure that's exactly what it is, um, but but I, I know the history of it. But, like, there aren't many places you can go and inherit a roster with two young all-stars, and, and that is the Sixers roster if you, as long as they don't move Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid. So I've seen some people say, listen, I don't know why you would leave a great job like Villanova uh, to take a not great job like like the Sixers job. And the point I make is that if, if Jay were to do this, I don't think it's about – I prefer the Sixers job to the Villanova job as much as I prefer the lifestyle the Sixers job provides as opposed to the lifestyle of a college basketball coach. Because the truth is, if you, it's a much easier lifestyle. It's a much less demanding lifestyle. You know, in the column, I point out that, you know, I've told this story before, but I'll skip through all the stuff and just get to the bottom line. I, I was in a conversation with Bill Self and a, a a young aspiring coach one time, and the guy wanted you know Bill's advice about you know how to become a college coach and and and, and you know did he have any career advice? And Bill said, "Well, why do you want to be a college basketball coach?" And he said, "Well, because I love coaching basketball." And Bill said, "If you love coaching basketball, try to be an NBA coach or try to be a high school coach." Um, Because like 10% of my job is coaching basketball, 90% is other stuff. And that is the life of a college basketball coach. Like, yes, you're in the practice gym. That's awesome time. You have games. That's awesome time. Beyond that, you are spending weeks at a time bouncing around the country, evaluating prospects that many of whom will never play for you. Um, You are texting nonstop with teenagers. You're FaceTiming. In pandemic times, your Zoom calls, you um, bring them to campus, you have breakfast with them, you have dinners with them, you talk to them, their siblings, their high school coaches, their grassroots coaches. It's an incredible amount of energy and, and often wasted time. You, beyond that, are on some level responsible for how your players behave off the court, whether they go to class, you're dealing with counselors, you're dealing with Um, academic advisors, you're dealing with um, on the recruiting trail, agents and runners and boosters. You've got to chit chat with wealthy donors. You've got a a golf outing with uh, to fundraise. It's just a lot of stuff. And in the NBA, it's just not. I mean, I remember talking to Brad Stevens his first year with the Boston Celtics and we, we were just catching up. And I was like, so, you know, they were losing a lot because he inherited a total rebuild. And I was like, how you, how you hanging in there? Because at the time of our conversation, I believe he had already lost more games in his first season with the Celtics than he had lost his entire time at Butler as the head coach. And he said, the losing's hard. You know, I'm not used to this. Um, and you have to recover pretty quickly because there's another game, you know, two days from now, if not tomorrow. He said, the losing is taking a toll. He said, but man, I don't miss the other stuff. He said, all I do is watch film, coach my team, go home. 
That's it. I don't have to coach my team and then call two recruits. I don't have to coach a game, meet with the media, and then meet with two kids we've got on unofficial visits. I don't have to have three prospects fly into Indianapolis and and I, I got to take them to dinner tonight, uh, leave my family tomorrow morning for breakfast. Like, like I'm paraphrasing much of what he said, but the point was I like the lifestyle of, of an NBA coach because all I want to do is coach my team. And that's all you have to do in the NBA for the most part. At the end of a college basketball season, you got to start recruiting, re-recruiting your team and recruiting new prospects to your team. At the end of an NBA season, most NBA coaches, if they want to disappear for weeks, maybe even a month or so, nobody would notice. And so from Jay's perspective, and again, Jake figure all this out on his own. And, and, and as I point out in the column, different people can reach different conclusions about what a better lifestyle is. Like mm-hmm. maybe you really like all of that stuff that I'm describing. Some guys do, some guys don't. So I think ultimately... Um, if I were Jay Ride, I would be picking between lifestyles right now as opposed to one job against the other. And how often – I know he's turned down many NBA opportunities before, and he, he might turn this one down. I think he probably does. But one thing that I, I think he would probably have to seriously understand is that this might be the last time he is – if he's offered the job, that he has offered the opportunity – to coach the NBA franchise in his hometown, you know, 25 miles from where he grew up, you know, 30 miles from where he works right now. Like this isn't one where you've got to relocate your family to, to San Francisco. You don't have to relocate your family at all if you don't have to. So there's a lot of stuff to consider. And that's why I'm sure even if he does get an offer and turn it down, he's probably thinking through these things right now. Jay Wright is 58 years old. Um, you would think that this is specifically from a pro perspective. Um, this is the final. This is probably like the final. Although I know when Beeline left and all that, but this is the the final window here. That if he's going to do it, uh, he wants to seriously consider it. It would be right about now. Jay Wright has made a habit. Uh, he's he's certainly been an East Coast version of Mark Few. Uh, made a habit of turning down really good job offers. I mean, as recently as. A year and a half ago, he turned down uh, what I understand was a salary offer that would have nearly doubled what he makes at Villanova to coach at UCLA. Uh, it's probably forgotten, but well, it may not be forgotten in, in Lexington. Um, maybe at this point it has been, but he turned down Kentucky when that was open um, way back when. So, And he's had previous jobs with uh, job opportunities with the, with the NBA. I think Jay wears the suit well, uh, perhaps uh, to put uh, too tight of a pun on it. Um, I think that he does enjoy uh, the lifestyle of college. He has certainly got Villanova wired to a certain level um, where, uh, and trust me, this word gets just absolutely abused in college athletics, but Villanova, without a doubt, is a culture. In many ways, I do think it's run kind of like an NBA franchise when you you talk to Villanova players, they've had plenty of interesting guys, great guys, and sometimes they just <laughs> they just can't give you much on the record there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, Villanova has ascended to a point where before 
you know, before Chris Jenkins hits uh, arguably the greatest shot in NCAA tournament history, um, Villanova was a good program that way too often underperformed in the tournament, and Jay Wright was a really, really good coach, uh, but Villanova was just in that second tier. That's not the case anymore. Villanova is universally regarded as a top 10 program in college basketball now. You can easily make the case that it's a top five program in college basketball right now. Jay Wright has... You know, he's sitting on 471, uh, 471 wins with Villanova. I don't know if, like, sometimes coaches, this is something they don't talk about a lot publicly, if at all publicly, but some coaches, and I don't know if this is the case with Jay or not, uh, They there are certain milestones, be it um, win totals, making Final Four, Sweet 16s, that that do mean a lot to him because, you know, when they were 24 years old or in, in adobo, uh, they made a list or they stuck something to a mirror, and those kind of things are real driving forces for him. At this point, Jay Wright's basically accomplished everything that he needs to accomplish in college basketball, and if you're going to make a case that he should give the NBA in Philadelphia a shot, why not? Because you go out on top right now. I mean, your legacy is absolutely intact. I'd actually argue that Jay is similar to Brad Stevens, even though they're separated uh, by, what, 15 years or so, and that Jay Wright could leave, take the Philadelphia 76ers job, never win more than 25 games in a season, get fired after three years, and his reputation as a coach in Philadelphia would be pretty much almost untarnished. I know Philadelphia is a very tough sports town, and Sixers fans would be highly discouraged and frustrated if that wound up actually happening, and I don't think that it would, but he's been so good for so long for Villanova that he could seamlessly step right back into college, get basically almost any job he wanted that was open, and and continue on his merry way, the same way that I think that it would be true right now of John Beeline. And then you brought up Juwan Howard, and I think the difference here is that Juwan Howard has long-standing NBA ties. He's been the head coach at Michigan for about 16 months here at GP, and when someone like Woj puts out a tweet that says, Juwan Howard is certainly an uh, a candidate in NBA circles for for job openings, and that that'll just I mean that'll catch fire immediately. Uh, I can understand why Juwan Howard barely over a year on onto the job. Um, and someone who certainly is regarded in basketball circles as someone who will ultimately like to get an NBA head coaching job if the right opportunity presents itself, why he would have to stamp that out. To me, Wright's lack of a statement just provides Dana brings up a good point, but it provides more of an insight into how secure Jay Wright is about this kind of stuff. I can't definitively cite to you that in previous instances like this, he has put out, Jay Wright's put out a statement, you know, mid-search, if you will. Um, but I don't think that his lack of a statement tips his hand that this is maybe more of a 50-50 proposition. I would basically, I'll, I'll be honest right now, I'd put this at 1090, that he leaves Villanova. There's too much there, and he's got a really, really good team. And if you want to talk about, you know, what he does and doesn't have left to prove. I will say that he does have four... Sh I mean, I think he has the best team going into the sport next season. And if you win a third national... Listen, you win one, it's an amazing all-time achievement. You win two, you're in rarefied air. If you win a third national title, Parrish, I, I mean, you are sitting at a table with five or six other coaches. It's actually six. Six people have won at least three NCAA tournaments in the history of Division One men's basketball. Trivia time. Okay, okay. Six, you said? Jay Wright would become the seventh okay. if he did it. Can you name the six men who have won at least three national championships? All right, so we're not going to go like tenant here and just assume that Mick Cronin's obviously going to be one of them eventually. Like, that's Mick, already happened, I, but we haven't reached that point in time. What? What? 
I am operating under the assumption, and I have been for a while, that Jay will um, someday, perhaps next April, become the seventh, and then obviously Mick Cronin will be the eighth. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm very intrigued by Tenant, by the way. I think that I think I kind of got what the plot is, although no one really knows. Okay, so six, six coaches. All right, Mike Krzyzewski. That's that he is uh, number two on the list. He's he's won it five times. Yep. Uh, the second best coach in UCLA history, John Wooden, is obviously there. Yes, uh, John Wooden uh, Court, soon to be Mick Cronin Court, but John Wooden's at the top of the list. He has ten national titles. Okay, and then you've got uh, Roy Williams, of course. Roy Williams has three. That's true. Okay, so I need three more. Um, hold on here. Uh, Calhoun. Jim Calhoun has three. Correct. Uh, I need two more. Three titles. Um, oh, I can get this. Uh, Dean only has two. Uh, Bob Knight is one of them for sure. Bob, yes, Bob Knight has three. I'm missing one more. And then I'm going to say I got to think that Adolph Rupp's the other one. Yes, he has, he has uh, four. Okay. Four for Adolph Rupp. So the list is Wooden 10, Krzyzewski 5, Rupp 4, Roy, Jim, Bob, three apiece. And Jay Wright's got a chance to... I mean, I mean that's a, if he could join that group, I mean, that's just... Seven, seven. It's a list of seven. Just... It, it, it's... I mean, and how about this? It would be three... And he's won. He's won two of the past four NCAA tournaments. <laughs> it'd be three of. It'd be three out of five eligible. I don't know how we're gonna phrase this stuff going forward, Parish. You know, coronavirus wipes out a tournament. But yes, he'd be. He'd won three out of five NCAA tournaments, which is just a. I mean, that's a joke. A Villanova, even though the roster's not the same, it's a genuine dynasty at that point, and to do it in the, that amount of time, and he would be. He would be three for four in getting to the final four and winning a title because he got there in 09 with, uh, with Scotty Reynolds and Crow. Right. So I went and looked it up when I was doing something else. The only other person to ever win three at a, in, in, three NCAA tournaments in a five tournament stretch is, is John Wooden. Like nobody's ever done that other than, than the second best coach in UCLA history. So uh, Jay is like, I mean, it's really a, a unique, high level stuff and you're right that'd be hard to walk away from because he's got a team that's built to do it in this upcoming season assuming we have this upcoming season and you and I both believe that we will in some form uh, you mentioned John Beeline when he walked away it was a little drastically different situation Beeline had a team where every player was eligible to return and though Michigan State was preseason number one last season, had all of Michigan's players returned, Michigan would have been preseason number one, at least in my opinion. But he lost multiple underclassmen, some of whom weren't projected first-round picks at all. So he didn't walk away from a possible national championship team as much as he walked away from, I don't know, a borderline preseason top 30 team. And so that it's a, it's a little different ask um, for Jay. But still, I, I think for all of the reasons already mentioned something that should at least be thought about and i would assume he is at least thinking about it because um again i'm speaking only for myself here but if you told me i could be if you gave me these options gp you can live in your hometown and you can be a successful nba coach or a successful college coach you're picking between those two things I would want to be a successful NBA coach because of the less demanding lifestyle. I know the season's longer, but the amount of work to do is is much less. Again, 
you don't deal with all of the stuff that college basketball coaches are asked to deal with. The issue here, of course, is that even if Jay Wright agreed with me on that assessment, here's the truth. It's much easier for Jay to be a successful college coach than it is to to be a successful NBA coach. Like being a successful NBA coach ain't really up to you. It, It is largely up to your front office. As I pointed out before, Larry Brown has both had the best team in the NBA and the worst team in the NBA in a not too long amount of time. It comes down to the roster you're coaching. Like Greg Popovich, um, you know, has won world championships. And then this year he missed the playoffs. Like Greg Popovich is still one of the best coaches in the world, but he doesn't have a roster that allows him to compete for championships right now. So he doesn't compete for championships. So it's much easier to consistently compete at the top of your sport in college basketball. If you're Jay Wright at Villanova, than if you're anybody in the NBA other than LeBron's coach for the past, you know, decade or so. So that's another thing that has to be weighed. But I just think it's a, it's not as nearly a no-brainer, you-turn-it-down situation from my perspective as some people think that it should be because it is a pretty awesome opportunity if offered. The opportunity to be the head coach of the NBA franchise in your hometown, in the place where you currently live, where you are inheriting a roster that has two young stars. Maybe they don't work perfectly together, but you've got two incredible talents that you would be inheriting. That's not what most uh, college coaches who take NBA jobs inherit, although Billy Donovan did at Oklahoma City when he got Kevin Durant um, and, and Russell Westbrook. And your point about, you know, if he wanted to, take a shot at it and then bounce back to college. He could get best job available any year. That That's a hundred percent true. Losing at the NBA level does not hurt your reputation at all. If you run a college basketball program into the ground, that hurts your reputation. If you don't succeed in the NBA, it, it, it you still are in the hall of fame, Rick Patino, John Calipari, Lon Kruger didn't succeed in the NBA. He's still wildly regarded. He's still well-regarded within the sport as one of the best coaches. So I don't know. It's a lot of stuff to consider. And uh, I wish Jay Luck trying to, trying to figure it out. So Norlander had a story earlier this week about four options for the start of the 2020, 21 college basketball season. We're going to get into that next, but first check this out. The all new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do. Like me, taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. 
Visit roberthalf.com today. So Norlander had a story earlier in the week about four different options for the start of the 2020-21 college basketball season as we sit here in late August. If you haven't read it yet, it's posted cbssports.com. Norlander, it's your story, so I'll let you take it. Tell the folks what's being discussed at the national level right now. Sure. It's a big week for the future of college basketball's regular season. And as we uh, record this podcast here on a Wednesday morning, uh, there are two committees that are getting set to meet. Uh, I don't have exact intel on when they're meeting. Hey, maybe they're doing it literally right now. So the Men's Basketball Oversight Committee and the Men's Basketball Selection Committee are both meeting on Wednesday uh, to discuss a lot of things about models for how, where, when, why, all the details about starting a college basketball season had the story go up on Monday afternoon. Here are the four preliminary dates that the that they're going to be discussing. Uh, season starting on November 10th, which would be the typical start. Uh, I think there's almost no shot of that happening, but nevertheless, it is on the agenda to discuss. And then you've got November 20th, November 25th, and December 4th. There are also practice start dates connected to those because you're allowed about 42 days before the start of your season to hold your first official practice. So all of those practice dates align up with the timelines on those in the C- in the case of December 4th being the first day of the season, option four, if you will, college basketball practices would not be able to start in earnest until October 24th. So we are having those committees meet this week to discuss that. It's also important to note, and my story didn't get too in the weeds on this GP, there have been recommended models uh, with all of this submitted to the COVID-19 medical advisory panel for the NCAA and another uh, kind of uh, prevention and performance subcommittee, if you will, that's looking into all the safety and health and safety aspects of all this because that has to come first. So all of these discussions that are taking place obviously come with the backdrop of of what the COVID-19 Medical Advisory Panel sees, suggests, checks off on, doesn't check off on, et cetera, et cetera. On Thursday, just so we have a full scope of what this week is going to bring, and I'll lay out the, the schedule for you real quick, and then I'll let GP uh, respond to this. Thursday, uh, the conference commissioners are going to meet to talk about this, and the the uh, the NABC, its board of directors, will meet to talk about the models and what days make the most sense. Um, those that'll be Thursday, and then Friday, you will have the women's basketball selection committee and the women's basketball coaches association. Obviously, the women's counterpart to the NABC that will meet on Friday. And what you're going to have over the next three days is a bunch. Of, I know it's a ton of committees, but there's a lot of stakeholders, if you will, and invested groups that want to have a lot of questions answered and pose different scenarios and see what might be doable and what might not be doable. Um, But we'll have some advancement this week. Dan Gavitt will run point, uh, if you will, on all of those meetings. And then what's tentatively scheduled for Monday, I was told, according to sources, is that there will be a joint meeting between both the men's and women's basketball oversight committees to kind of collectively get all of the information and decisions that have been decided this week and start to form an official recommendation that will then go next week on Tuesday to both the NABC and the WBCA uh, as board of directors and ideally the NCAA's stakeholders have all of this stuff finalized. Here's what we think we can do to start a college basketball season. Here's our plan. That gets finalized eight days from now, September 3rd, next Thursday. From there, the D1 Council will basically be given all of the material, and it will have almost two full weeks to look at it, review it. The D1 Council is a roster of athletic directors and other and, and other people. It's like a 30-person roster. It will vote on that September 16th. 
The one important thing to know about all of this, though, in talking with people about what's going to be discussed this week, GP, is that there is another D1 Council meeting scheduled for October 13th and October 14th. And it's at that, even though September 16th, we're going to have an official word, all right, we've approved to start a college basketball season on X date, okay? But the impression I get is that it's really the October date where we would have some finality to it because there is an expectation that between September 16th and October 13th, we are going to have significant advancement and knowledge about how widespread this virus is, you know, in terms of campus life, okay, and how advanced we might be able to be with certain levels of testing to where if, let's just say they say November 25th is the date they want to start out parish, um, if they push that back to December 4th or even a date after that, it was insisted upon me that the four dates I've shared with you are the first four initial dates. They aren't the only dates they'll consider. January is still out there, but they're pushing that back. I do think that we will have a clearer vision come October, but we will have a first definitive say, yes or no, you can start on September 16th. How much of it will be reliant on how college football goes, do you think? I think that's probably 50% of this, to be honest. That was also impressed upon me, uh, in particular between that September 16th D1 meeting and vote and the October 13th, 14th D1 meeting and vote because you're going to have, if you have, college football games happening between there. Um, I mean, I had a few, I had one conference commissioner tell me basically, uh, this is, everything that's happening with college basketball is, it's, it's optimistic right now because there are just so many more people communicating the way they should be communicating in advanced time here, as opposed to how football was done. And now we wait and see if the football conferences that have opted to play can pull it off. Then logistically speaking, as you and I have mentioned on this podcast, Parrish, um, even though there are more games, it's just way traveling parties are less. There's still plenty to be decided. And information I do not have yet is what is happening with non-conference. And I actually, the one thing I can share on that is I don't think, although we've, I, you know, I had a piece last week about the challenges of non-conference scheduling. Paris has written about how you pull off a season for the site. We've talked about it on the podcast. I think I've talked with at least two people that are well connected enough at this point to say that, no one just yet has a real sense on whenever the season starts, if that would be conference only or non-conference only. Uh, I think a league like the Pac-12, which in my opinion went way too soon, is waiting to see what news comes from this and if it might be able to finagle anything and walk back a little, a little of that. I don't know. So uh, what we don't know yet is when it will start and how that would look. I did have... One person pretty connected suggests that if like we started December 4th, December 4th, I'm told, is the slight leader in this race right now to start the season. Okay, It's, it's a little bit before the 25th of November. The 10th is almost certainly not going to happen. The 20th probably isn't, but it's still under consideration. But if you started December 4th, a lot of the games would shift back. What, what they still don't know is all of the what's known as MTEs, your Battle for Atlantis, your Cancun Challenge, your Maui tournaments, where they'll move, if they'll move, and when they can get played. There's a lot of questions about all of that still, stuff that still has to be figured out. Obviously, coaches want to play those games, and mid-majors 
desperately want to be involved in those kind of games, but those things have just not been decided yet. I do think a lot of that stuff will be addressed today, Thursday, and Friday, but I don't even know if we'll necessarily get answers on that until you know it'll happen behind the scenes uh, next week on Wednesday or Thursday. Not to get too deep into it, but I just can't imagine that if you're the state of Hawaii, like an actual island, you want basketball teams from all over the continental United States flying to your island. I agree. In like, fact, Ed Cooley, just real quick, Ed Cooley even said on a Zoom call with the media last week that he, like Providence is scheduled to play in Maui. And he's like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not planning to fly out there. So I don't think right. that's going to happen either. Yeah, I don't. I, I think we will find out in the coming weeks or months that a lot of that stuff is just like, hey, we'll try it again next year. But like under these circumstances, you, it's just a no go. Um, do you think because like as, as we've talked about before and you've done the research on uh, most schools have not announced their schedules at this point, but some have. Mm-hmm. Do you think anybody that's announced their schedule so far will actually play the schedule that's in front that that is printed on paper somewhere i do not and i think since we last podcasted i had that other story go up so we didn't really get too much into it and we don't have to get too deep into it now but i did i mean i talked with uh, i mean i don't talk 15 15 to 20 coaches in like 10 to 12 different leagues big leagues middle leagues small leagues and uh i one or two coaches that had their schools released their schedules they don't anticipate playing their schedules the way that they're presented now no and that's part of why like you know Schools aren't releasing them now. Like every power conference, with the exception of maybe one, actually one coach in a power conference uh, said they had not released their schedule yet because they were actually waiting on a contract to be signed by uh, another school, a lesser school, which I found to be interesting. But otherwise, these these schedules are done. They're just not going to release them because what's the point? What's the even if fans have a decent idea of you know ten of the twelve teams or nine of the thirteen teams that would comprise an on conference schedule? Like the chances of playing those kind of games just they're not that optimistic at this point. But I will say, you know, the NCAA is is certainly set on trying to have some semblance of a non-conference schedule for multiple reasons. Uh, you have so many mid and low majors that rely on potential buy games, even though the rates have been slashed by half, plenty across the board. Uh, it helps sustain those athletic departments. And then the selection committee just wants nothing to do with not having a non-conference schedule. So they're going to try and get it done. I have had a couple of head coaches and power conferences suggest to me, and this kind of got... This actually got uh, not swatted down, but it wasn't as enthusiastically received by a couple of the high place sources I spoke with this week as I thought it might be. A couple of high uh, power conference coaches said, don't be surprised if we you know, start in December or January and we have a tournament in May uh, and push it back as, as best means, which is, by the way, GP, is what I would do. Uh, but I think that for a lot of reasons, the NCAA is still going to try its best to have a tournament in March. So if you gave the NCAA, right now my reading on this, and I have to uh, preface this by saying, if there's enough input in the next two or three days from all of these committees that changes this, then the situation will change. But right now the NCAA would take, if you could say, okay, you start in January, you play in May, and you get a whole full season in, okay? Non-conference, conference, the whole thing. It's like a regular season, but you just bump the timeline back. You, sl- you slid that scale seven weeks, or you start... November 25th or December 4th and you end on the calendar where you always end with a 64-68 team tournament, but you have seven or eight non-conference games, I think the NCAA would take the latter. I think they'd rather just keep the tournament in March, not have to worry about shifting things around with TV and all that stuff. They like they like that America's sports audience is conditioned to know when college basketball hits the stage in the brightest lights and keep it there. Uh, it's certainly willing to shift the tournament. I want to make this clear. 
they are going to have a tournament, <laughs> barring just absolute catastrophe. We will have a tournament in 2021. Barring catastrophe, it's going to happen, but they're going to try their best to make sure that happens in March into that first week of April, as opposed to drifting it back another four, six, eight weeks. So to bottom line this, people keep asking me, so when is the season going to start? We don't know. Nobody knows. That's but right. I do think some of it will come down to how does college football go? Like, does it go well or is it a disaster? If it goes well, then I can envision the people who are in charge of college basketball saying, okay, we're playing college football outside of a bubble. Mm -hmm. Let's try this. And if it's a disaster, the plan, my understanding is, in a variety of ways, will shift to let's bubble up. Um, but, 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 but they're not going to watch college football fail and then try to go down that same path. Just like they didn't watch college football wait around and do nothing until it was too late. Like they're not going to, they're not waiting. They're playing their contingency plans. And, and tell me if this is your understanding as well. Contingency plans are being discussed right now. If we can't play outside of a bubble, then what do we do? Um, that, that's not something they're going to have to figure out over the span of a weekend in late October. It's stuff they're figuring out right now um, because one way or another, they want to have something that looks like a non-league schedule. One way or another, they want to have a conference schedule of some sort. One way or another, again, to borrow your word, barring a catastrophe, they're going to have a 2021 NCAA tournament. Um, we don't have to lie to each other because of the amount of money that's at stake. That's right, and as, as detailed in the story, one source said you have to start from the, the back right. on this. You, you start with having the tournament. You start with holding the tournament. You make your decision there, and then you figure out uh, different ways to get there after, after that point. Um, what I'd be, I'm particularly interested in just what the hell everyone's going to do with the Pac-12 here. I'm inclined to believe, and I don't have intel on this at this point, but I'm inclined to believe that um, a major factor in some of these discussions, and listen, it's not, up, it's not up to 30 other leagues to cover the rears of the Ivy and the Pac-12, but the Pac-12 is a power conference with some significantly big programs and good teams and future NBA players, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one coach I spoke with said, and I can't remember if we brought this up on the podcast or not, and I've, I, I sometimes lose track of all the conversations I have on this, but he said, you know, it wouldn't shock me if we eventually get to, let's say we start November 25th, right? And they decide when there's no students on campus, um, and who knows GP, like that's other thing. Like if we get to September 28th and like 5% of all campuses have students on it because it's just a disaster. I hope that's not the case, but just there's so many things we have to learn in the next. It's starting weeks. to look like that will be the case. I mean, it's just it's not inspiring, by the way. College football teams have had outbreaks, but like I, you and I follow a lot of the same people that whose primary beat is college football, and like there are regularly updated, and we get the emails too. Like, okay, you've tested 742 people and you've gotten seven positives back. That's a relatively good rate here. So there are signs of of good with college football, but the campus thing is a, is a different scenario altogether. Anyway, I won't lose my, my plot point too much here. Um, would they decide to play conference games first? Because people are split on whether or not you, I think it's inevitable, you have to send kids home for Christmas. You cannot tell players, hey, listen, man, if it's either you play the season or, you, or if you want to go home and see your... Uh, big sister and little brother for four days, you can do that. They have to, I've been told that hasn't been like explicitly addressed in the room yet, but you have to. Like starting in November and this theory that you play from November 25th to the middle of January until the second semester starts, it's just not based in reality. You cannot restrict these 
college players, student athletes from going home for a Christmas break. So they have to factor that in. And when you return, you're going to need to quarantine. So um, there has been some speculation about, okay, just start with league play. You know what? This season's not going to be perfect. Let's let's get funky with it. Start with league play end of November, early December, and you keep uh, the testing is the same because the testing might not be as good the first week of December as it will be the first week of February. So this could allow the Pac-12 to actually say, okay, we did say no non-conference play until January one, but if we have within our you know within our grasp the ability to compete with just within our own league with our own league games and however we want to do it and. and Conferences, it would be up to them. You could have everyone go to one site, or you could have four teams go to one site and do a round robin over the course of five or six days. I think you could see some bit of variety with that with conferences because they have different geographic ranges. They have different resources, let's be honest. So you get all the conference games or as many as you can done before Christmas break, maybe resolve it a little bit in early January, and then you save the non-conference for the second half of the season. Just... I don't know if that'll definitely happen, but it would not surprise me. It's certainly being put out there, and I happen to think that is your best pathway to having some success. Okay, everyone can test in your league. You have that opening in late November, early December. You just play league games. Who cares? You're going to have to play them anyway. Get that done. Oh, by the way, if that were to happen... NBA is not going to start till Christmas at the earliest, from what I've been told. You'd only have the NFL because college football would practically be done. College basketball actually has a great opportunity here, if it can pull this off, Parrish, to have most of the month of December where the NFL, and granted, the NFL will suck up almost all the auction. I get that. But you'll have Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, Friday nights, Saturdays, where you have almost no football, if, if no football at all, and it's a great opportunity for college basketball to have some real urgency. Do that, then bring non-conference games in as a possibility mid to late January or February when testing could be better, the situation in our country maybe, hopefully, could be better. And then if it's not, then you bail on that. You do league games only. You have a tournament whenever you have a tournament and get it done. That's what I would recommend, but we'll wait and see if we get there. One last thing on this, and then we'll move on. I, I agree with you that you 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 probably can't tell student athletes they can't go home for Christmas. I will say that is how you mess everything up by allowing them to go home for Christmas. Like I think it was Oklahoma football had an outbreak, and when Lincoln Riley talked about it, he said that every player that tested positive for COVID nineteen is a player that went home. The ones that stayed on campus, they're fine. The ones that went home. They went home. They were around friends, family, in a less controlled environment. They got COVID-19. They brought it back to campus. And so I don't know how you balance those things, but the recipe for disaster, if you will, is trying to get this thing started and then telling everybody to come home, go home if they want and then then letting them come back. That's that's how you get bad. That's how you get bad situations. I don't know. I, I don't know how you resolve that, but. It has already been proven at the very least in Norman, Oklahoma, that um, in our country's current state, right now these college football players are largely in controlled environments, and it is largely going well. But when you send them home and then bring them back, you you get you get problems. I don't disagree with that, and I just don't see how you get around it. You're not you can't force these kids to. I mean, you can give them the option, but like. I just don't think that I don't I don't think that there will be games scheduled between like December 23rd and December 27th for sure. I don't think there'll be any games scheduled in that window and then they'll have to decide what they want to do with that. Maybe they blow up right past it, but I I don't know. At a certain point, Parrish, I just think there's a, when we talk about 
having these players play in bubbles or semi-bubbles or cloisters, however you want to describe it. Um, how many sacrifices are you going to be willing to make? Um, because all of these decisions are also being made, and one coach did point this out to me, um, all this stuff is getting made with the imminent, like, name image likeness stuff coming down the pike and you know congress being involved and uh hey we're on the same page as as to what they should be allowed but there are other people in the ncaa with certain interests that understand that the more of those kind of decisions you make like the less footing you have going forward and we think the ncaa should just give it up anyway but it's not going to so i just think these are real factors that they need to to take into consideration uh one last thing before we my guess is that december 4th will be the date I could be wrong. It could go later. It could go earlier. But I think that December 4th will be the, the, the agreed upon date, uh, or maybe it's a day earlier or a day later that the season will start this year. Obviously, we'll continue to talk about this as developments emerge. But uh, for now, um, there, there's more uncertainty, uh, more questions than, than than answers. But the answers will start to be delivered in, in, in the coming weeks in some form. Uh, one last thing. Fun little headline from... Tuesday night, I guess, Marshall Henderson, the University of Mississippi announced, has uh, returned to campus. He will be a graduate uh, manager in Kermit Davis's uh, program. So uh, on Wednesday, it's White Girl Wednesday right now, which Marshall Henderson made famous back in, I guess, 2012, 2013. He is one of the real characters of the sport of the past decade. And um, to now have him back in college basketball is pretty – I don't know how much fun it will actually be. Like, what do you do if you're a graduate manager? But um, I I enjoyed the Marshall Henderson era for all of the content it provided. Uh, I did too. Uh, The most recent other famous – graduate manager well i guess there have been two can you name uh, trivia time all right two relatively not relatively i mean these were straight up famous famous dudes in the sport when they played um one was a one and dunner and the other was a three and through uh were i think graduate managers if they weren't technically graduate managers they, they were in a position basically parallel to what marshall henderson's agreed to and both of them held their posts within the past five to six years you know who i'm referring to the one in Dunner, I would assume, is Greg Oden. Correct. At Ohio State, yes. And the other one is Adam Morse. That's right. That's right. So if there's look another... Look at me! Look at you. Look at on, me! On your game right now. That's right. If there's... If, if Listen, if you're listening to the pod and you happen to know that you, there was a star at your school that did this in the past decade, please let us know. But I'm not dying to know. But those are the two that popped to mind when I saw Marshall Henderson news on Tuesday night. Marshall Henderson, to me, w- was so interesting in part because of, of where he played and his path. Um you know, he started, first of all, the forgotten Utah year. I mean, who could forget? I mean, he, start, he started at Utah, transferred, and then I don't think a lot of people realize this. He only played two seasons at Ole Miss. Like, I think a lot of people have their memories of Marshall Henderson as this, like, four-year rabble-rouser with the Rebels. That's not what—that was not the case. I mean, he was a really good player— for two years, he was an absolute troublemaker. He didn't give an F. It was wonderful to watch. He provided college basketball's best gif of all time, no doubt about it. Shouts to Jeff Borzello for a what court report write-up uh, back in the or night court, night court, <laughs> night court, night court. Court reports my deal. Um, but uh, but this and and listen, he's Marshall's coming back, and it's not even the guy who coached him in college. Andy Kennedy's uh, down at UAB now, and and. Shouts to Kermit. He's he's brought him back in, and this is just yeah. It's a it's a fun little headline. It was awesome to see, and the fact that the announcement came with Ole Miss's social team dropping a little slim shady over the video there, I thought was wonderfully placed. And um, 
Henderson wasn't without his faults in college. I think that is obvious. But he was a household name. And for someone at Ole Miss, you know, Ole Miss is arguably the worst program in SEC basketball history. And the fact that he did it there, I was always fascinated by that. And, uh, yeah, he hasn't been in college basketball since he left in 2014. But he's back. And rest assured, there will be you know features or stories on him in the coming months there. And uh, hopefully Ole Miss can be something of a relevant team in the SEC this season. But, yeah, this is just... This is fun. This is cool. This is one of the small things that makes college basketball, college sports fun, where you've got a former star, tried the pro thing. He's going back. Who knows what the future holds for Marshall Henderson? It's not. This is not going to be a position he has for five years. It might be a one-year thing, but it is awesome to know that uh, Marshall Henderson is is back at the Grove, if you will, and uh, involved in Ole Miss's program. That's pretty cool. You want to feel old? He's 29 years old now. Wow. Is he really? He's 29. I looked it up before we started. He's 29 years old. <laughs> Hopefully matured <laughs> because he was wild, man. I remember because, like, there was one time at Ole Miss he got busted with weed and coke residue. There wasn't enough coke residue to, like, get a charge, but, like, there was coke residue <laughs> in, in the car, all right? So he got after it. And I, I remember it was – the first day of Peach Jam, like the Peach Jam would always start on Wednesday night. So we'd mostly fly in on a Wednesday morning and then you'd have the afternoon to like get your head together and then you're getting ready to go to games that night. And it was on, a, I believe it was on a Wednesday because I remember having to go to a Starbucks in Augusta and write the column. Marshall Henderson has, was suspended by Ole Miss. I think I remember that, Parrish. I want to say, I want to say we were like, in the same car, and you had to file it, and I was like, I'm just going to the hotel. I, I got no desire to sit here at a Starbucks for now. I remember when that happened. Right, so um, he's, that's all they announced, is that he has been suspended, I think it was indefinitely or whatever, and I, you know, I to start calling and texting people connected to the Ole Miss program, and I'm, and I'm like, listen, so what happened? And the response was like, you know what happened. <laughs> and it was a failed drug test, and I think... I think it was for Coke. I think he like, you know, he, he failed he failed that drug test. So the hilarious part, I don't know if you remember this, and I don't even know if this is if we could find this video anywhere, but I think it was one of the Kimdichi brothers, maybe Denzel Kimdichi. Really? And and Marshall Henderson do a video together. Okay, so he just got he just got suspended on White Girl Wednesday. And so they're now it's like a Kim Dietschy is interviewing Marshall Henderson <laughs> to discuss his suspension. It's like so out of bounds. And, uh, and so in some form he asked him like, you know, so, you know, how you feeling, man? And, and <laughs> Marshall Henderson said, sadness, ho. <laughs> that was the answer to how, how you, how you feeling? Oh my gosh. Sadness, ho. Sadness, ho. I still use sadness, ho. Like, one of my buddies will text me after the Mets blow a lead. He's like, yo, did you see that? I just text back, sadness, ho. <laughs> and I think the video got taken down pretty quickly because, like, the people at Ole Miss were like, yo, man, you cannot be on YouTube discussing your suspension yeah. with a Kim D. Which is like, the thing, you- by the way. Like, I was just going to say this wasn't on Twitter. Twitter couldn't – you couldn't have video to Twitter at this point. So this would have been, like, uploaded to YouTube. It's crazy how fast our world advances. Uh, I remember – 
we don't have to like do total Marshall Henderson memory out here, but I remember I was in the, he they made the tournament once 2013 his his last season at Ole Miss they did not qualify for the NCAA tournament so Henderson's NCAA tournament uh, career ended with that loss to LaSalle it was a really good game LaSalle made the Sweet 16 after I want to say going to the first four like they made that little run there um, but yeah we watched watched that uh, watched him lose to LaSalle. In Salt Lake City, because I was covering the tournament out there, uh, shouts to Ken Palm, because I was with I was with Ken Pomeroy. But I was I remember thinking like, man, it would have been so great if if Henderson Ole Miss had made the second weekend of the tournament. And then I want to say Ole Miss fans or SEC fans might remember this. I want to say something came after they lost too, like or maybe during the tournament there was something related to Henderson that was newsworthy that wasn't about his performance on the court when they were in the tournament for that. It was either after the loss or the game before that. I just can't remember what it was, but there was something uh, surrounding that as well. And that whole thing also kind of lifted up his national profile and presence because Ole Miss rarely went to the tournament. Not only did it go to the tournament, but you know, it made it as a 12 seed, but it was a fun team. They won, you know, 25 plus games. And then they wind up uh, sort of getting upset by LaSalle and getting shocked and getting bumped out of the tournament at a time where people were like, no, we want, we'll take as much Marshall as we can get. And they just wound up falling short. And then in 2014, they don't make the tournament, as you pointed out. And if I remember correctly, uh, the South Regional was at FedEx Forum in Memphis that year. So I was there, and it was like Dayton, Florida in the Elite Eight. It's when Archie was in the Elite Eight. And I guess Archie and Sean were both in the Elite Eight that same year. And Marshall Henderson just shows up at FedEx Forum as a fan, like cheering for Florida. (laughs) Like that was a big thing people were talking about. And like, hey, and then it was like – People were on Twitter like, ah, I just saw Marshall Henderson on Bill Street. And I was like, ah, this is going to get out of hand. So uh, he was a character, man. It was funny. I saw uh, the Ole Miss athletic director, you know, having fun with it last night. Um, They've now got Lane Kiffin on campus at Ole Miss. (laughs) They've got Marshall Henderson on campus at Ole Miss. And so somebody... Uh, on Twitter said, uh, the only thing we need now is Swack Kelly back on campus at, at Ole Miss. And, and oh. Keith Carter, the Ole Miss athletic director, was like, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> so, Swack Kelly, just, he was, I think, uh, listen, I'm not, uh, you would know more than I think he was actually more of like uh, a problem child than even Marshall. As far as what I can remember, that was. My, like, my man threatened to shoot up a club with ex- a machine gun. Exactly. <laughs> He's machine gun Kelly. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. Oh, <laughs> Oh, man. So, anyway, shouts to Marshall Henderson. It's nice to have him back in college basketball, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry and Beth Fatigue. Legend. Shouts to Lauren now, and thank you for listening once again in the middle of a stupid pandemic. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell one person about it. If you're not subscribed, please go subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate it. Norland would appreciate it. We will. Talk to you again really soon. Until then, take care. There's a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.